Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Desmond Mead. Desmond lost his right to vote in Florida when he was convicted of a felony. He fought for years to restore his voting rights and those of other formerly incarcerated people, ultimately winning voter approval of a constitutional amendment in Florida restoring voting rights to millions. He recounts his story in his new book, Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore Civil Rights of Returning Citizens. Who better, in effect, to commentary, to give commentary, if you will, through the uh, electoral process of our criminal justice system than those who actually have to face it? I'm the guy that actually came up with the idea of even having a, a, a ballot initiative that would restore voting rights to people with felony convictions. This affects over a million potential voters in Florida, and this is now we've got a projected answer on Amendment 4 in Florida. It looks to be, uh, it, it looks like Amendment 4 um, will pass. Governor Ron DeSantis today signed a bill requiring Florida felons to pay court-ordered financial obligations if they want their voting rights restored. Mike Bloomberg raised more than $20 million to help people convicted of felonies vote in the upcoming election. Hi, I'm Desmond, and I'm fighting for a more inclusive democracy that includes people with previous felony convictions. Sorry, not sorry. Desmond, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Your book, Let My People Vote, gets into really frank detail about your personal story and what brought you to activism. Can you tell us a bit about your early life and how you started down this path? Sure. You know, I was born in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. I moved over to the mainland United States at a very young age. I was around like five, I, I believe, and grew up in South Florida, Miami, Florida, for quite a number of years. And then when my parents separated, I split time between my parents in South Florida and in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. I like to think of my early childhood as an experience that really broadened my perspective a lot without me even realizing it. Knowing that, like, for instance, when I was in Miami, living with my mom, I attended basically an all-Black school. But when I was in the suburbs of Chicago with my dad, it was basically an all-White school. And so I got to experience a bit of both worlds. And then, of course, the Midwest compared to down South as well. And the different mannerisms and uh, customs. And so I think that my childhood really prepared me to really get into the activist work that I'm in now and really helped me have a much broader perspective of things. What was the biggest difference in the sort of two ways that you grew up? You know, that's a great question, right? Because the kids at either schools had the same issues probably was just that we came from, I would say, different sides of the tracks or just have a different skin color. But, you know, the same things about who's the coolest and who's dressed the best and who's more likable and who has a girlfriend and who don't. And of course, the sports things is always universal. I would say that when I really think hard about it, I would say that the teachers in the all black school, 
I believe, exhibited a more sterner approach to education than the all-white school. It was less tension there as it relates to teaching. What do you think that was from? I think maybe because, I guess, growing up in the inner city or the schools in the inner cities, they're under so much pressure to produce, knowing that they're, you know, as African-American or a person of color, that there are some disadvantages that you're normally starting out with. And so there's this desire to overachieve, knowing that we have to do a little bit more than a white counterpart to attain at least somewhat close type of success. And I think that there was a lot of pressure to perform there. And of course, these schools in the inner city, I think, are more scrutinized. And also underfunded. Yeah, definitely underfunded. I've seen that, you know, now thinking about it, that there was a difference with the amenities. What you're seeing are the effects of a larger problem in American schools. The U.S. doesn't treat all students equally. But if we wanted to, we could do something about that. The school that I went to in Illinois, especially when talking about the middle school, uh, was almost like going to a college campus, right? As opposed to the middle schools in South Florida, where there were old buildings that we were going into. It's such an interesting perspective that you had in both situations and that your takeaway was that young people deal with the same problems everywhere. So the people are the same. It's the systems that were different. It's interesting. So you were arrested, and you're very honest about this in your book. How long ago was it that you were first arrested? How old were you? Oh, Jesus. My first interaction with law enforcement came when I was 16 or 17. And it was something real stupid. I was with a sister of mine that I loved very much. And we were in her car, and she had a broken taillight. And we went to a hospital for her to pick up her check. And I noticed the car was a similar car to hers. I was watching her baby girl. She was still in the uh, carriage. And I'm walking around with the baby carriage and I see the car. And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be nice to surprise my sister with a new taillight so she don't have to be driving around with a broken taillight. And I took the taillight off the car. I joke about it now with a family. Like I took her baby on a high-speed chase, you know. But no, I, that was my first interaction. You said 17. Yeah, I was around like 17. And then I had an addiction to drugs, which accounted for my subsequent interactions with law enforcement. I want to talk about how your first arrests affected your life. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's a couple of things there. You know, when you get arrested, I'm in Dade County, Florida. The jails are horrendous. I mean, horrendous. They get you up early in the morning to go to court. And when I'm talking about early in the morning, I'm talking about maybe one or two o'clock in the morning and you're getting shackled and you're forced to stand for an extended period of time in a place that's extremely cold. And they load you on the buses and of course it's freezing in there and they take you to a holding place that the smell is just overbearing of feces and urine and vomit. And you're there and you can't like sit down anywhere. It's a crowded place. I mean, the toilet is right there. And then some people will actually go and use the toilet. Right. And it was just a miserable experience. And so by the time you get to the court, you're ready to get out of there. Right. And so you're hoping that they would offer you what they call credit time served. 
And if they do that, you jump on that regardless of if you're innocent or guilty. When I first got to adult court, my first plea offer was 15 years. Being 16 at it, that's scary. I wasn't even thinking that far at that time. I was living day to day. Get on that because the thing that you hate is when they don't hear your case and they send you back and then you have to repeat that same process over and over again. And it really wears on you. And so I think my first time getting arrested, it wasn't about whether or not I was guilty. It was about getting out of there. To be quite frank with you, I think the first few times it was about just getting out of there, not wanting to be in those conditions and not being able to afford bail. And also at the time at the height of my drug addiction, wanting to get back out so I could use drugs. And so I went through a system that wasn't concerned about finding out the truth, right? It was more concerned about processing cases. It's interesting to hear you talk about it. I don't know that I've heard anyone speak of how they're impacted or affected by the sensory experience, right? The experience of the smells. And I can understand how activism would be the thing that enables you to heal from that experience and finding purpose from that pain. Because you had a really tough situation. You found yourself homeless. You were an, an addict, and then you ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you were charged with felony possession of a firearm. Talk a little bit about that point in your life and how it shaped who you are today. Yeah, you know, that was after my mother passed away. Two of the biggest fears I had in life was, number one, I didn't want my mother to die before I did. For some reason, you know, I mean, I loved my mom to death, and I didn't think I'd be able to handle are dying before me. And so I actually used to pray that God would allow me to die before my mom died. Just because the idea of living without her was too painful? It was, it was just too painful. I didn't want to. Because you would miss her so much? I don't know what I would have done. And I actually found out, right? Because when she did pass away, I tell you, it was very painful for me. And I really sunk in a much deeper place as it relates to drug addiction. I think around six months after my mom passed away, I ended up losing her house. As much as I love my mom, it amazes me how my addiction allowed me to not have any regard of a legacy. And I remember just going through the house and finding things to sell so I can get I, even uh, taking the copper piping out of the house and the aluminum jealousy windows and selling them. I basically dismantled the home that my mom really gave her life to provide for me, right? And I did that in six months and I was out on the streets. And, you know, every now and then I would squat here and there. And in this particular instance, I was squatting in someone else's house. And the truth to the story is that the police officers came to the wrong house. They were trying to kick in the door. It's 8.30 at night. I see lights. You're inside a police car on Chicago's south side. We're sneaky. A team of officers zeroes in on a house. 14 heavily armed cops on the hunt for a heroin dealer with the street name Pina. Did anybody knock? No. They just came in? Search warrant Chicago police! Let's open, go in, watch the right. But they are breaking into the wrong home. 
And I remember looking out and all I seen was a few male figures in all black. In my head, in the neighborhood that I'm in, I'm thinking, oh, these guys are coming to rob. But eventually they said, you know, one of them said, police open up. And I actually opened up and let them in. And they took everybody out of the house. The owner was actually there. And I remember telling the owner, I'm like, I don't think they should be in your house like this. You need to let them know that you're the owner. And when he worked up enough courage to do so, they took him inside and it came back out. They handcuffed me and told me I was arrested for having a firearm. I think basically how the story went was they found a gun in the house. It was a legally registered gun. The gun actually belonged to the owner of the house, but the police convinced them that something was wrong and that either he has to claim the gun or I claim the gun, but somebody has to go to jail. And the owner figured that I'm the one that should go because he has money to bail me out. That was his reasoning. And so I was arrested for that and eventually convicted and sentenced to 15 years. In 2001, I was sentenced to 15 years because I was in a home that possessed a legally registered firearm. Is this still hard for you to talk about? Or have you gotten to a place where you've found solace that this history is what makes you you and why it makes you so effective in your activism? You know, I like that question because I love questions that make me think. Right? And, and that just did. And what I thought about, my response to that question is, it's not hard for me to talk about now. Because I realized those painful moments when I was having to endure that smell, those painful moments of me being arrested for something I didn't do, those painful moments of very aggressive police takedowns that I had to endure in my life created an opportunity for me to really have a deeper understanding of what we're even going through now as a society and to be able to lend some insight on how we can resolve some of these issues, right? One of the things, that I, and I speak about it a little bit in my book. So one of the things that I've discovered, right, and it was just through experience that I remember when I was in drug treatment and my counselor told me to write a letter to my mom. So this is the drug abuse treatment center inside the Berlin State Prison. And every day these guys go through some group therapy sessions. There's one about to take place now where they can talk about how the treatment's going and you know, what they're looking forward to and how they're working on helping themselves get themselves clean. I'm like, I'll write a letter to my mom, right? So just do it. And, and I remember I started to write the letter. I could not get past their mom before I started crying. And I had to tear that letter up because I wet the paper up. I couldn't write it on the paper. And I kept rewriting the letter, right? It was just one thing after the next. I was actually getting like maybe a paragraph or two in and then I have to start over because I wet the paper up. And then when I got through writing the letter, I went and read it to someone, right? And before I could get through half of the letter, I'm breaking down crying. And then I read it to someone else and I was able to get through more of the letter. I read it to my counselor. I was able to get through more of the letter. And finally, one day during a group session, I shared the letter and I read it and I didn't cry. And I remember someone telling me how that letter was so profound and touching, right? But they were curious as to where the letter as deep as I wrote, how come I didn't cry? And they wondered, did I make this up or how sincere was I? 
And my response was, I've already shed those tears. I went through that process. And what I realized more and more each day is we have to figure out how to embrace that pain that's inside of us and allow that pain to actually make us stronger. Because here is like science right here in front of you. It is impossible to get stronger or to gain muscle unless you tear muscle. And in order for you to tear muscle, you have to experience some type of resistance, some kind of tension. And after you get to a certain point, then you're able to tear the muscle. And once you tear one layer, another layer grows on top of that while that layer is healing and you repeat the process. And so pain and tension is part of growth. That's how we get stronger. And so I learned early on that even though those moments could have been embarrassing, it could have been painful, I learned early on that the more I talk about it, the more liberated I become and the stronger I am. And you ready for this? The greatest thing that can happen to your pain and your personal suffering, right, Alyssa, is when it is used to heal someone else or to prevent someone else from going through what you've gone through. And so now it becomes a positive and you could throw your shoulders back a little bit like I did. Because when I look back at all of the things that used to cause me shame, pain and embarrassment, I throw my head back and say, wow, I was chosen to go through that. I could be of greater service to a greater number of people. And that's something special. That's something that I honor. And that's something that I think that creates a requirement in me to continue doing this work and living the best possible life that I can possibly live because there are people that are looking and there are people that's out there that's waiting for our stories. It's amazing. The analogy of the muscle tearing. That's why I wrote this book, believe it or not, because I know that there are people out there that's waiting for that story. I was waiting for that story. I felt that in a profound way. I have always described my trauma and pain as breaking open through the trauma and pain, I've allowed myself to be so much more vulnerable and to experience other people's trauma and pain. But the way you describe it, that's more about strength and growing stronger from pain. And you just helped me tremendously. So thank you so much, Desmond. I want to skip ahead, and I want you to tell me the experience of getting out of prison. You'd spent a long time being incarcerated. Were you able to find housing? Were you able to find work? What about your addiction? How did you do it? I did it the same way I learned how to do time in prison, right? One day at a time. <laughs> One day at a time. I tell you that in some cases, I consider myself a little fortunate, but I still experience it. One of the worst things. I believe is even how you're released from prison, right? The person released in a way that sets them up for success or at least a successful reentry back into the community. And the very first thing that they do that really have like sound alarms and ring bells is the fact that, especially in Florida, that you are released at ungodly hours. You're released at why you do know, they do that? Two, three. I have no idea why they do that. 
None whatsoever. You really said a time where the only thing out there on the streets are bad things. It's a setup. It really is. Yeah, it's got to be because, first of all, it's dehumanizing. But second of all, like that's definitely not setting you up to succeed. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And then if you're an addict, that's a prime environment for you to actually now re-engage in using drugs. If you haven't re-engaged while you were incarcerated. Just touch base on what is a high-risk situation for you as far as relapse. I would say my biggest relapse triggers would be um, big emotional changes, big big things happening that I have no control of over in the streets, you know, family. Uh, for me, it would be like too much free time or extra money or like not not having a schedule, things to stick to. My you know, biggest trigger is being around negative people you who know, always want to complain about what's going on and like... Also, I said boredom. I can't always sit there and occupy my time, so sometimes it's like, oh, well, I'm going to do this, escape, you know, and feel good today. It's hard to stop by yourself, especially on the street or even in here when you're using every day. While I was incarcerated, I didn't use drugs. I thought to myself that maybe, okay, I don't have a drug problem. I was able to not use it while I was incarcerated, but as soon as I got out and I was placed in those situations or in that environment, it was just so easy for me to pick up a drug and end up using again and and right back into that same vicious cycle. And so I was fortunate because I was finally aware of homeless programs and had some idea of how to, I guess, manipulate the system, right? Knowing that, all right, if I go to a police officer and I tell them that I'm homeless and I don't want to get in trouble, that they would take me to a homeless shelter. And having a police officer take you to a homeless shelter greatly increases the likelihood of you actually getting admitted into that homeless shelter. Because if I were to walk off of the streets to a homeless shelter and say, I need help, I wasn't going to get it right there. It's a documentary nightmare or bureaucratic process that I would have to go through to get into. And by that time, I'm doing something else. And so recognizing how strategic it was to get a police officer to bring you into the homeless shelter was one of the advantages that I had. And so I was able to get some type of structure as soon as possible. And then that structure was very helpful in so many ways. I was in a great program in South Florida. Unfortunately, I had a drug addiction that I had yet to come to terms with. But the homeless program was an amazing program that in around 90 days, uh, they're able to take you from being homeless to actually having your own place to live with furniture, food, and a job. I just don't understand. I mean, we hear this over and over again from so many people. I don't know how, and it's infuriating that we haven't come up with a better way at like the government level to manage addiction and homelessness other than incarceration. There is a better way, and the solutions have always been there. The problem that we have with homelessness and drug addiction is the same problem that we're seeing now in our society with COVID-19. And that is that whenever politicians or politics is involved, it hampers the ability to actually do the things that we know need to be done in order to create a better environment for everyone that's living in our communities. And unfortunately, we see it play out, you know, that when politicians are involved, people die. Our country gets divided. 
more and more. And there's more hatred and fear being spread around. And it's shown us that what we need more of is public servants and people that will place the needs of the people above their political preference, right? Because there's a time when you could put that stuff aside. And I know it. We see evidence of this constantly every year throughout the year. One of the times that we see it is our natural response to natural disasters or even coming across an accident. You know, if you're driving down the street and you see an accident ahead and there's someone laying on the ground and you decide to stop, right? When you get out your car and you approach that person, your first question is not going to be, did you vote for Donald Trump? It's not going to be how much money you make or what's your immigration status or what's your sexual identity and none of that, right? It's going to be, are you okay? How can I help, right? When we analyze surveys from uh, more than 200,000 adults across the globe, we saw that nearly a third of the world's population reported giving at least some money to charity in the past month. Remarkably, in every major region of the world, people who gave money to charity were happier than those who did not, even after taking into account their own personal financial situation. I know that there are environments where we can operate on a level that where we're connected with each other along the lines of humanity. And our politics or our prejudices and our biases does not take precedence over our human connection. And so I know that we can operate on because we've shown this continuously. But the political nature of what we're doing and the power that we have acquiesced to politicians have created an environment where we're not able to operate like that on a daily basis. And we're not able to solve those issues around homelessness and drug addiction. And we're imprisoning people that have mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And most of those people are looking like me when we know that there's a better way. I couldn't agree with you more. You are preaching to the choir. I've actually had some really tough conversations in the last week from people in the Democratic Party about being too hurt to reach out to the other side and want to move on and forward together. I understand. I understand that Trump and his administration brought a lot of pain But we can't continue down this path, not only because it's hurtful to humanity, but also because we'll never get anything done. We're not going to get anything passed if we continue on this obstructionist mentality of politics. And the thing that you keep going back to, which I think is really important, is service. And we need to define what leadership through service means. I think that's why female politicians can be so impactful and effective if they allow us a seat at the table, because power means less to us. Not to all women, but to a lot of women, it is about service. Because there's a nurturing element there, right? Right. We're maternal. We're empathetic. We're compassionate. I even hate the term activist, to be honest with you. I think it's too sharp, almost. I feel like a more accurate term for what you do, for what I do, is a humanitarian, because it gets back to the human part of this instead of the anger part, because I don't know how we move forward. And I'd like to see that in my lifetime. I don't know if everything is going to happen in your or my lifetime, 
But I think one of the key things, and I think everything you said was right. I think there's one element there too as well. When you talk about that power and taking it back, I think we have to really be very intentional about realigning the relationship between constituents and public servants. A huge issue that we have is that we've turned public servants into demigods and we, the constituents, have been turned into the servants. There's no other successful business that I know of where the boss have to beg an employee to do something. And when the employee don't do it, they still get a promotion and a raise. But that is what's happening in politics. The reality is, is we are the bosses because the power originally rests within us as an individual. And we have acquiesced some of that power in order for us to live in society together. And we elect servants to administer that society, right? And to make sure that it's functioning properly for our benefit. And whenever you have people who you are electing that's now acting like they're your boss, then that's something wrong. And that's something that we have to blame ourselves for because we worship politicians and we actually exalt them to such a high level that now they're walking on air. At the end of the day, we've come so reliant on them to where we've become lazy and we're not showing up at elections or we're not holding people accountable and people are able to do whatever they want. So when the boss is away, the employees will play and we have the inmates running the asylum. And so the reality is, number one, we cannot put our hope and trust. Matter of fact, I have a great story for you. Listen, when I was in elementary school, I like to tell people I'm a shy person. I still think I am. But it was a particular girl in my class that I had a crush on. But I needed to know if she liked me or not. And I remember, you know, we used to write those notes. Do you like me? Circle yes or no. I decided to take it a step further and send my friend, my best friend, to find out if she likes me. Well, my best friend never came back and he took my girl. And so I learned at an early age to never rely on anyone to get the thing that you need. Right. And that means that we can't even rely on politicians that we have to take ownership in developing the type of country, the type of community that we want to live in. We cannot depend on a Donald Trump or Joe Biden or any of Barack Obama. We cannot depend on only one man to create a society that we want. We have a role to play in that and we have to take ownership. And if we take ownership, then we're able to dictate to our elected officials what we want. And if they don't deliver, then we fire them and hire someone else to do it. And in the case of what you're seeing, I would like to say with a lot of the elected officials who are women, there are people that they were hiring, not doing what they were supposed to do and decided, well, let me go ahead and do the job myself since these people are not doing it right. And they come with that attitude. It is an intimidating attitude around men. But at the end of the day, it's about how are you serving your people? Not how are you serving special interests, not how are you serving your party, but how are you serving the people that you're governing over? And I think that we have to take a lot of that responsibility. You know, in my book, when I talk about Amendment 4, right, that we were like the first ballot initiative that did not seek out endorsements from politicians. As a matter of fact, we know we told them, y'all, you guys just stay away. We can do it without you. We, the people, have the power to do it without you. And a lot of people thought that was impossible. Oh, you need this candidate. Oh, you need this elected official. 
to say that they support it in order to get people. No, I don't need a politician to support us. What I need is a politician to follow our lead. You need to follow our desire. You need to follow the path that we're laying out because we're saying that we want a society where people have second chances. We want a society where more people are participating in elections in spite of their previous convictions, right? That they're able to be a part of that democracy. And if we leave it up to you politicians, it would never happen. That's a big deal, not just for the people directly affected by having their voting rights restored in Florida. This is a big issue of racial justice because of the racial disproportionate impact of this uh, type of uh, policy. Um, And this was also thought to be a potential turnout issue in terms of Democratic turnout in Florida. That's right. We took matters in our own hands. Talk about taking matters into your own hands, though. I mean, you got out of prison. And you went on to enroll in a community college and you received a law degree. And I just think it's amazing. And I'm wondering, how did that happen? How does someone go from being a recently incarcerated person to getting through law school? Wanting to serve. (laughs) Wanting to serve. You know, when I was notified about me being honored as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine, and I went to the gala, I was joking with some of the folks from Time saying that, why did they put The Rock on the cover? They should have put <laughs> me on the cover, right? They should have had me on the cover because it wasn't because I wanted everybody to see me, but what it was, it was the same reason I wrote the book because I wanted people to know that anyone has the potential to be one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Anyone, here I am along the likes of the Pope of presidents, of celebrities. I didn't have to be rich. I didn't have to be a movie star. I didn't even have to be an athlete. I was a homeless drug addict that was ready to jump in front of a train and end up becoming one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And with me on the cover is saying, this book is saying to everybody that read it, that no matter what situation you're in, no matter what trauma you've gone through in your life, no matter what demons you're battling or the obstacles you may encounter later on, that you still have the potential of allowing your life to be used in such a way to impact or improve the lives of millions of people. You can do it because if that homeless drug addict can do it, then that means that I can do it. Anybody can do it. And the key is serving. How do we give back and how do we let love be our driving force? I was telling someone the other day that I'm fighting for people who may hate me because of the color of my skin. I'm fighting for people who may have a totally different political view of the world. I'm fighting for people that may want me dead, but I fight for them nevertheless because I love them. And so I think that we all can do amazing things if we're committed to giving back to others, understanding that, matter of fact, I used to tell folks that love is wanting for your neighbor what you want for yourself, right? Knowing that if I strive to make your world a better place, then all of our worlds become a better place to live. And I think that that is so key to that transformation. So when you ask me about going through those stages and going to college and law school, it was all because when I was in drug treatment, I got on my knees and I told God, you know, I was like, listen, I don't know where you're going to take me. What I need for you to do is give me the stamina, the strength, the wisdom, and the discernment to do your work. And I was on my knees praying for you. 
and I didn't even know you, right? I was praying for people because all I wanted to do was make my community a better place than what it is. That was it. That's all I wanted to do. I want to talk about voting rights. When did you first understand that you had lost your right to vote even after you had been released from prison? And what was that realization like for you? (laughs) When I joined the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition about a year after I stood in front of those railroad tracks and I was introduced to felon disenfranchisement. And a lot of this stuff I was told, you know, like I said, I've been sentenced many times and I am almost 100% certain that majority of those times, if not all of those times that I was sentenced, that at some point in my sentencing, I was told that I would lose my civil rights. But I never understood that. And it wasn't until recently that they've been a push to really make sure that people understand the consequences of a conviction, particularly around the area of the loss of civil rights. But at the time that I was going through the system, it was like, mumbled to me, you know, only thing I was about was how much time I was going to serve and how quick I was going to get out. And so all of the other legal jargon, I didn't pay too much attention to it. And so it wasn't until I attended a convening for the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition that I was formally introduced to felon disenfranchisement. And I started understanding the consequences, or at least the political consequences of my felony conviction Let's talk about voting in the U.S. If you're a citizen and at least 18, you can vote in elections. Period. End of story. Right? Well, actually, no. If you've been convicted of a crime, it's possible that you could have that right taken away. We'll get into the details later on, but there are certain states that prevent a big chunk of people who did their time in prison from voting. Yeah, they got out, completed their parole or probation, all the stuff that they had to do, they did it, and still can't vote for years or even for the rest of their lives. And then when I was considering going to law school, then I started understanding the breadth of the collateral consequences of that because even though I ended up graduating law school, I made the dean's list, all of that, yada, yada, I still can't practice law in the state of Florida because my civil rights have not been restored. So I can't even sit, apply to the Florida bar to even sit for an exam to see if I am qualified to practice law in the state of Florida. And then the nail in the coffin came in 2016 when my wife, Sheena, she ran for political office. And here I am, an advocate, doing all of these great things, especially around felon disenfranchisement. But yet, I couldn't even vote for my own wife. And I didn't even realize that until... Probably about a month before the election when somebody actually approached me and said, hey, Desmond, I know you can't wait to vote for your wife. And when they said it, it dawned on like, wait a minute, I can't. I can't. And that was like somebody took a knife and stuck it into an old wound and just twisted it. That was a very painful moment because maybe a few weeks before I read an article about prisons in Puerto Rico being able to vote during the presidential preference primaries. And I was like, wow, all over this country, even in Puerto Rico, that there are folks that are able to vote even while they're in prison, right? And then you have some that are able to vote outside of prison. But yet, here I am because I live in Florida, I can't even vote for my wife. That was a painful moment.
So finally, in 2018, Amendment 4 passed, which is incredible, and became part of Florida's constitution. First of all, tell us how that felt, and then tell everyone about the fact that that wasn't the end of the fight. I think we did a beautiful thing in 2018, right? When we passed Amendment 4, and here we are, we're engaging in a a very critical or a controversial topic in which is restoring voting rights to people with felony convictions. And we're doing it in a controversial state as Florida. And we're doing it at a time where the political environment is rife with fear and hatred and all kinds of stuff. But yet we passed Amendment 4 without any major opposition. And even some of the people that was assumed to be against it actually supported the effort. And we had over 5.1 million people which was a million more people voted for our amendment than for any of the candidates that ran for governor. Let me tell you my favorite piece on this. When I looked at those 5.1 million people, those votes, that none of those votes was based on hate or fear, but rather those votes was based on love, forgiveness, and redemption. And that night we showed the world that love can in fact win the day. We showed the world that, that we don't have to tear each other down in order to move major policies that would enhance our communities or enhance the life of people, that we don't have to attack each other, right? We never attacked anyone during our campaign. It was a campaign about love and forgiveness. And so we didn't have to tear people down in order for us to progress, right? And then we didn't have to progress by ourselves that we could all collectively progress together. And so that that was a beautiful moment. But like in every beautiful moment, we have politicians that stick their hands in. And once that happens, it becomes ugly. I want to refer back to even how we're dealing with this corona pandemic. The beautiful moments is when people come together and help each other out. The ugly moments during the pandemic is the political part, right? (laughs) When people are dying. And so it's the same thing that happened with Amendment 4. We did a beautiful thing. We brought people together. We had over a million people that voted for Amendment 4, also voted for our current governor, which showed that we had a broad cross-section of support. Young, old, white, black, Latino, conservative, progressive, independent. It was a hodgepodge or a cornucopia of folks that actually believed in second chances and was powered and motivated by love. Politicians got involved. We had a Republican-dominated legislature that insisted that they create implementation language for Amendment 4. <laughs> I told y'all the Republicans were not going to take 65% of the people voting to restore voting rights to formerly incarcerated, especially when it affects upwards of 1.4 million people. I kept telling y'all that. We were excited on election night, and I said, watch them damn Republicans in Florida. You know what they're going to do. Even with my man Desmond Mead and his wife Sheena came on, all oh, no people, where's the people? I'm like, I'm trying to tell you, don't trust Republicans. <laughs> now you have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who beat Andrew Gillum by 30,000 votes because enough of y'all didn't pick ass to the polls. In Miami, no, he beat him. He has said today he will sign a bill that will require ex-felons to pay all financial obligations before they can vote. The story I tell is that homeless family that was living in the street and was rained on and snowed on and politicians walked past that homeless family year after year after year after year after year after year, year, never lift a finger to help that homeless family. 
but the community one day came together and decided to build them a home. And after the community built them a home, here comes the politicians trying to dictate how you furnish a home, right? And that's what we had with Amendment 4. It's so frustrating for me. Why do you think that politicians are so insistent on ignoring the will or the love of the voters and just making it so hard for people to vote? Well, part of it is, like I said, we have to take on some of that responsibility, right? And so our participation in elections have been poor, especially when you compare to other countries as well. I know understanding that a lot of these countries' elections are like national holidays. But at the end of the day, I think when we get lazy and we depend on politicians to fix things for us and we don't get engaged, we create an environment where they do become demigods. And they know that the fewer people vote makes their job a lot easier. And they know that if they can just target certain people and and they need the money to target certain people, that means that the people who donate to their campaign have more influence than the people who they're supposed to be serving. Right. We've seen that even when you looked around like gun control, you've seen that where like at one point, I think 90 percent of the country believed that we have to have some type of sensible gun control laws. But yet politicians were able to just callously just totally disregard that and do what the lobbies tell them to do. Right. And we have to bear the brunt of some of that. We allow them to stay in office. I think you said it with the lobbyists, just the fact that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world and we have so many institutions that are profiting off of keeping it that way. And that's on both sides. We're keeping it real. That's on both sides. And that's why it's so important that at some point when I realize it's not about the D or the R, right? It's about the P, right? The people, right? At the end of the day, you know, there is so much division in this country is torn families apart. It literally has torn families apart. And I think that even when I look at my personal relationship, that my wife and I don't agree on everything, but we still love each other so dearly and fiercely and that we could still not only love each other, but respect each other and find ways to function as a family. And I think that as a country, we have to learn to do that. Uniting to fight the foes we face, anger, Resentment and hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, and hopelessness. With unity, we can do great things, important things. We can right wrongs. We can put people to work in good jobs. We can teach our children in safe schools. We can overcome the deadly virus. We can reward reward work and rebuild the middle class and make health care secure for all. We can deliver racial justice and we can make America once again the leading force for good in the world. It starts, I think, with understanding, first of all, that at the end of the day, man, number one, we're human beings. Number two, we're Americans. And that has precedence over our political or religious preferences. I think when we start from those basic principles there and understand that, My goal is not to get over on you. My goal is to create a better world for you that we can live in. When we start from there, I think that we can change some things. What is next for you and how can my listeners help? I'm telling you, I want to continue. I think my organization did an amazing job this election. I remember before the election, 
before election night, I remember having a staff call and I told all my staff, I said, no matter what happens on Tuesday, I want you all to know that we already won. We already won. They were like, well, why are you saying that? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Number one, we was able to help thousands upon thousands of returning citizens, people who never thought that they would get an opportunity to vote, actually get the vote. When you're running across an 84-year-old woman who never voted in her entire life that's getting ready to go cast a ballot and you look and see the excitement in her eyes, the glow on her face, when you remember the story of the young lady who was given six months to live and her dying wish was not to uh, uh, meet a famous celebrity or visit an exotic location, but her dying wish was to be able to cast a ballot. And unfortunately, she died before having that opportunity. But meeting the 60-year-olds and the 70-year-olds that's voting for the first time in their life, you have won. And then we look around and see that, listen, we had more young people participate in an election than ever before. And, and that's something that people have always complained about, young people not participating. You had a significant increase of first-time voters. You had a turnout that has never been seen before. In the age of COVID, in the midst of a pandemic, we had turned out like never before. We have increased the participation in our democracy. We had won already. We won. And no matter what the outcome was, even if it wasn't what you wanted it to be, the fact that more Americans participated in this election and there was a significant increase was something to be happy about. At the end of the day, if you're fighting for democracy, then we have to be real. Or if you're fighting for your side, then you need to be real about that. But if you're fighting for democracy, what you're saying is that I want everybody to participate and wherever the chips fall, that's where it is. And so that means that in spite of I want right, if the majority of the people says left, then I have to accept that knowing that it was because of participation of my peers and my neighbors, that's what they wanted, but that's being a part of democracy. It's not, oh, well, you didn't vote my way and the outcome didn't happen my way, so I want to take my ball and go home. That's not what the democracy is all about. And both sides need to understand that. At the end of the day, what we wanted was participation. We won. And so when you ask me, that was a long way to answer. When you ask me what's next is to continue to increase the involvement of American citizens in our elections, especially to include people with previous felony convictions. There are still about 700,000 returning citizens in Florida who cannot vote because of outstanding fines and fees. And we want to work to help them get their fines and fees waived or help people pay off their fines and fees. We raised over $30 million this past election cycle, and we want to continue to raise money because there are people who had to choose between putting food on their table or voting. And I don't think no one should ever be forced to have to make that type of decision, that access to the voting booth should be unencumbered and free. And so we want to continue helping people have the experience that I had when I voted for the first time in over 30 years and when I voted in my very first presidential election. Well, Desmond, I hope that you will call on me to be of service to you and your organization. Tell everybody where they can find your organization. Yes. Yeah, so we're at FloridaRRC.com. We're on Facebook at FL Rights Restore on Twitter. I'm definitely at, on Twitter at Desmond Mead and folks can reach out if they want to contribute to helping people pay off their fines and fees. They can do so. It's so easy. 
They can definitely go to our website. There are so many ways to get involved. www.floridarrc.com. So, Desmond, in the beginning of this interview, you spoke about your mom's house and about the work that she put into it, and that was her legacy. And I just want to tell you that none of the stuff in that house was your mom's legacy. You and your achievements and accomplishments is your mom's legacy. So don't forget that. Hold that in your heart. I'm holding that. That was so beautiful. Yes. It's true. You are your mom's legacy. And I can only hope that my children can reach a place of love and compassion as you have done. No matter how you got to this place, I'm so glad to have met you here. So thank you for all the work you do. They were arrested. They were charged. They were convicted. They were sentenced. And they served their time. Right. But they fulfilled that aspect of citizenship. It may not be a positive aspect in our opinion, but they have done everything that we have asked. And then when they are released, when their time is done, we then say to them, you are still not worthy enough to be called citizen again. There are crimes that are associated with electoral crimes. Right. And those seem to be rationally related. If you commit an electoral crime, should your right to vote be taken away? Sure. But when you talk about someone who's committed a felony, uh, maybe writing a bad check or, or something of that nature, and we're going to permanently disenfranchise you, that's a problem. One of the worst things we do as a nation is profit off of prisons and prisoners. We've built a financial incentive to keep people locked up. And you know it's not white people who are paying the most of this price. Industries use prison labor for pennies on the dollar. States and the federal government sign minimum occupancy contracts with for-profit prison companies guaranteeing a certain number of inmates. And while these corporations profit off of this forced labor and forced confinement, the people, and we must never forget that these are people, often can never escape their sentences. The fines, the stigma, the disenfranchisement, and the lack of support during and following incarceration feed a cycle of recidivism and a cycle of profit for these immoral profiteers. It's not right, and it's made even worse by taking away the vote of those people who have completed their sentences, keeping these returning citizens from having any say in breaking that cycle at a societal level. We need to do better. We need to get Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who has shown over and over again that he does not care about profiteering on the suffering of black and brown people the hell out of office. We need to outlaw for-profit prison, and we need to make sure those inmates who are forced to work are paid at least minimum wage for that work so that they can pay any debts and find security when they are released. We need to stop incentivizing states and businesses to lock people up and start incentivizing them to lift people up. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world in America. More than Cuba, more than China, more than Iran, more than North Korea. Come on, we need to be better. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.